Long from Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, you're a middle school teacher? Yes, I am. But you once taught an entire course about serial killers, not in middle school, I don't think. No, high school. I also oh. taught high school for 10 years. Oh. Uh, the kids helped design it, and they picked certain ones that they wanted to do research on. Welcome to Every Night's a School Night, and I wanted to get one of these in before the end of the year, before the end of the decade. Everybody likes to talk about how the decade's ending. It's not just the end of another year, it's the end of a decade. Uh, and uh, that was obviously Frankie Valley with one of his classics, Stay. And before that, we heard a little Jeopardy snippet. I've used those before. I've used those Jeopardy snippets before, particularly when a contestant is talking about something strange or dark. And this episode isn't going to be strange or dark, hopefully. Hopefully it won't be strange or dark. But it will have, uh, you know, some tinges of what's on my mind. I don't want to consider this episode just a total tribute episode. But naturally, you know, if you listen to the last night school uh, you will, you know, my mom passed away uh, about two and a half weeks ago, and uh, that that's naturally on my mind. And there's a part of me that, in doing a show like this, I don't want it to just be me talking about my mom all the time because I could easily do that, and that's going to influence everything I do moving forward. Uh, but it is very relevant, and I I feel no guilt, <laughs> obviously, for for. Uh, the passing of my wonderful mom working its way into what I'm doing right now. And I have had a lot of insight. I have had a lot of uh, new transformative feelings and experiences. So, of course, that would influence everything directly and indirectly. But I decided to go ahead and make this episode something of a tribute. It's not going to be just, I'm going to play my songs my mom liked. 
or something like that, or songs that are about my mom. It's not just going to be that kind of thing, although that will be a part of it. I don't know what it'll be. I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know what this is going to be. Uh, but I, I did feel the need to do an episode with my mom in mind. I think that's the best way to put it. I'm doing an episode with my mom in mind. And even just that Jeopardy intro. Uh, my mom and I used to watch a lot of Jeopardy together. And uh, it was kind of weird the, in, in recent times, though, knowing that Alex Trebek is going to die. He's been dying of cancer, and he's he's made it very clear that he's not going to make it terribly uh, terribly much longer. And I've had a lot of sad feelings about that. I'm not one of these people who reacts strongly to celebrity deaths, even people I like, you know, even celebrities, actors, people like that I like, you know. I do feel like a, like a moment of, oh, that sucks. But I'm not one of these people who's like, you know, flips out about it. Um, but Alex Trebek is one that's significant because, I, you know, I've always been a Jeopardy fan. I've always really respected and liked him. And it's been weird to watch him in recent months, knowing that he's not going to be around much longer and knowing how irreplaceable Alex Trebek is. And my mom was really excited because she loved that contestant from earlier this year, James. Jeopardy James. She just loved that guy, as everybody did, because he was just, he was the best ever. He was just, he annihilated everybody. He was so good, and it was so fun to watch somebody. It was like watching an incredible quarterback. It was like watching a future Hall of Fame quarterback play, uh, except it was Jeopardy. Uh, The Jeopardy quarterback. Um, But, uh, Coming up in January, in about a week or two, there's going to be some tournament of champions that's going to have James against uh, some of the best ever. You know, he's going to be going up against Ken Jennings, uh, names that should be very familiar to you if you give a shit about Jeopardy. Ken Jennings and uh, Brad, those two guys are two of the best Jeopardy contestants ever, and they're going up against the new guy who, uh, you know, annihilated all the records, and my mom was so excited about that, so I'm going to be watching that in her honor. I'm going to watch her favorite, James, go head-to-head with the other uh, Hall of Fame Jeopardy guys. Um, But uh, the serial killer part was funny, too, because it's just funny to hear that referenced on Jeopardy. Uh, but that was a sweet thing about my mom, you know. Uh, that was a sweet thing about my mom is she was this, like, wonderful, you know, uplifting, positive person. But when she was home for the night, she watched true crime documentaries. And that goes back to when I was a little kid. And I think my first experiences with the entire topic of true crime and serial killers and all of that come from pretending to be asleep or pretending to not be listening from the other room while my mom was watching these serial killer documentaries. So it was always a funny sort of dynamic with her. I don't want to say that it was... um, It wasn't contradictory in any way. It's just that my mom was very interested in both the lightest aspects of being, which is kindness, generosity, uh, doing what you can to make other people's lives happier. But when she had her downtime, she liked to just immerse herself in these really dark topics. And it was funny the last couple of years because I quit true crime cold turkey. I was just like, I can't take this stuff in anymore. And I've talked about that a lot on this show. But when I would be at her house, 
she would always be watching some kind of cold case files show and there'd always be like her body was found and you know she was last seen with uh, her on again off again boyfriend uh, you know and there'd always be something like that in the background when I'd walk by and sometimes I'd even we'd even butt heads a little bit. I'd be like, you know, can we watch something else? Can you know, if I'm going to be here, can I? Can we not watch this? I, I've just, you know, it's it's. I, I was almost like a you know some someone in recovery where it's like, can we just not have a bottle of wine on the table? But I was that way with like true crime because I just felt like I burnt myself out so hard and I just didn't need that darkness, you know, in my in my life. But uh. Uh, it was just funny because that was such an interest of hers. So you got Jeopardy, serial killers. You know, this is this is a, obviously this episode's going to be me talking about my mom. Obviously, uh, already. Uh, I shouldn't even try to say this isn't going to be some just straight up tribute because it really is. <laughs> um, but uh, the Frankie Valley th- is something I wanted to play too, not because she was a fan. She really wasn't that I know of. Uh, she always appreciated my taste in you know doo wop and fifties, sixties music. She always appreciated that. But she was a Doors girl. You know her favorite band of all time when I was growing up, going back to the sixties, seventies when she actually saw them a number of times. Her favorite band was the Doors. She loved the Rolling Stones. Uh, and in recent years, Leonard Cohen. And it's interesting because it's it's sort of that same dynamic I was talking about where as much as she was this positive, uplifting person, her interest in music always kind of dwelt in this existential territory. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, she watched uh, The Voice and America's Got Talent and, you know, formed opinions about her favorite singers on those shows. And she did care about pop music and this and that. Uh, but when I think about the stuff that she really talked about a lot, the stuff that she, you know, chose to buy and listen to throughout her life, she liked existential lyrics a lot. And she was a very lyrical-oriented person, a lyric-oriented person, where she really liked to sit and think about Leonard Cohen's lyrics or Jim Morrison's lyrics. And that's interesting to me. It's another one of those dynamics in the same way that she liked watching true crime in her downtime. And someone might think that contrasts with, you know, someone who's just so into, like, affirmative, positive living. Uh, I think that you can really take something from that. And you can look at the way that someone like that is interested, is so is so engaged and interested in both extremes. And choosing to live a life that is exemplified by the positive extremes... Uh, but still being interested in the other side, too, you know, and that balance uh, is something that is hopefully something that hopefully she passed on to me or that I have in me. But I, I definitely learned from her example, and I feel like I'm learning even more now the importance of acting in that positive way, acting toward the good and paying attention to both the good as well as the bad and, you know, kind of filtering that out, filtering it through your own system. And uh, it's really the only way to learn about the world is through paying attention to everything. And I feel like that's something she did. Uh, but the Frankie Valley thing, like, as I was saying, it's like she wasn't necessarily a fan. I think she appreciated it. 
you know, she could appreciate it. It was she appreciated oldies and things like that, but it wasn't her thing. She was much more, you know, she graduated graduated high school in 1966 and a lot of her musical taste was that post 66, you know, late 60s early 70s sort of sound, that era of the Rolling Stones, the Doors, and then as I said, uh, later on she got into Leonard Cohen. Uh, and so, uh, but the Frankie Valley thing is very interesting to me, and I don't know if I mentioned it in that last night school where I talked about my mom's passing, but the last thing my mom said to me directly in the hospital, it might have been the last. I don't I don't know that it was the very last. And she was in a the infection had affected her mental capacity to where she was capable of talking and responding and all of her data was factual. This was the really interesting thing about this infection is it, it affected her ability to perceive her surroundings and to really know how bad her condition was, which is a blessing, because she didn't, while she was having some pain, she wasn't in some horrible, miserable state. She didn't seem to, and, and part of it might have been helped by what the hospital was giving her. Um, but even when we were at home, before I took her to the ER and everything, before the aid car came, uh, she was still pretty much unaware of how bad her condition was. So she she wasn't suffering excessively, which I'm fortunate. Uh, I'm, I feel very fortunate about that. But but about the mental aspect, what was so strange is she was very uh, her ability to perceive reality was affected. And she was like rambling on about a lot of stuff with no context and and she didn't seem to be completely aware of her surroundings and didn't seem to be completely aware of the reality of her situation but everything she was saying was accurate like if they asked her her social security number like that kind of like true data like numbers she was able to rattle it off birthdays all of that but she was also t talking about random family friends and she, she named off the first and middle names of these family friends' daughters who, you know, we've known a very long time, but it was just strange that she even knew their middle names and she just rattled them off. And she also told a story to me about this uh, teenage couple in her junior high who had a baby together at age 15 and they had to drop out. And this would have been probably like 1961, whenever she was in junior high. And I remembered, I vaguely remembered her telling me that story once, probably 15, 20 years ago when I was a kid. And so I knew it to be true. And there were a lot of other things she was saying. So all of her data, all of her facts were 100% accurate. So it's not like she was talking nonsense. It's just that there wasn't really a context to it. But the last thing that I recall her saying directly to me and most of our interaction her in her final hours in the hospital, the last couple of days when her mental condition was affected, was her asking me to take her home. Uh, most of, like, she saw me, she knew who I was, she knew I was her son, but most of what she wanted from me and most of her interaction with me was centered around, take me home, get me out of here, or, or like, tomorrow you're going to take me home, right? But a lot, of, a lot of it was, like, as I said, she wasn't aware of how bad her condition was, so she kept asking me to basically, you know, get her out of there. 
Uh, but what was really incredible is the last thing, I believe it's the last thing she directly said to me. You know, my mind was racing at that point because things were really escalating. But she looked at me and with a glimmer in her eye and a little smirk, she said, you know, you know, on The Sopranos, didn't they have that 50s singer? And my mind just, it was already racing, and it just, it started spinning really quick. Like, I was just like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I just heard the word Sopranos come out of her mouth, because, you know, she and I, back when The Sopranos was originally on, uh, it's when it was originally airing on, on HBO, we used to watch it together, and both got a huge kick out of it. And obviously, I'm really into the whole gangster thing. I'm really into, you know, the mafia. And, uh... She uh, she and I used to watch it and get a kick out of it. And The Sopranos is my all-time favorite show. It's something that I re-watch. I, I, I try to re-watch the series at least once every couple years, if not every year. And I just did a re-watch earlier this year. And whenever I do that, I, of course, want to talk about it because... That's that's how I feel about the Sopranos. Uh, the Sopranos, to me, it's you know it's one of those shows that's not just some gangster macho show for guys, but it's also not just a soap opera with all these like characters, relationships, and this or that. The way I truly feel about the Sopranos is it's like a Bible to me, and each subplot, each little story, it's all they're like parables, and the characters to me almost have this biblical significance. All of them, all the characters on the show, they have this almost biblical significance where these little subplots that play out do remind me of parables. And whether or not there are lessons in them, I don't know. But they at least, I've learned a lot through those. And and I'm fascinated by them. And I don't even know what I've learned. I don't even know what I've learned. Um, But The Sopranos does have this kind of weight with me. And it, it has since I watched it originally, you know, going back to the, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't start watching it in like 98 or 99 when it debuted, but I started watching it a few seasons in, um, uh, a number of seasons in. So I started watching it sometime around like the mid 2000s, maybe when it was like nearing the end of its run. But I, I watched the whole series and then was able to see, you know, the final season when it uh, aired. And actually, I watched that final episode with my mom. I remember when it cuts to black at the end of the final episode, you know, just cuts to black out of nowhere. And you're like, wait, what the fuck happened? Uh, I remember experiencing that with my mom. Uh, But so The Sopranos does have this, it's not just my favorite show. It's like this, it's, it's something bigger than that to me. And when I heard my mom mention that on her deathbed, after her, like, not just only asking me to take her home, there, we, weren't, we weren't sitting there able to have conversations. Like, I, we were able to, you know, when I'd, I'd ask her something and she'd answer it as herself and everything, but it wasn't, it wasn't a normal interaction uh, for the last couple days. And so for her to just look at me, you know, as things were escalating and, and for possibly the last, like, direct thing my mom ever said to me to be on The Sopranos, didn't they have that 50s singer? And my mind just flew into, like, I was trying to figure it out because I was thinking, like, oh, I I remember what I said. I I said, oh, do you mean, like, on The Godfather, like, the Johnny character? You know, Al Martino? Uh, Because in The Godfather, there's the character who's believed to be based on Frank Sinatra. Uh, He's uh, the godson of 
the Don. And uh, but that he's not a '50s singer, you know. That sh- the Godfather takes place in the '40s or something. But that's that's just where my mind went because I remember talking to my mom about that many years ago as a kid, like when I first saw the Godfather, talking about the Johnny uh, character, and so so I so I kind of like responded with that. I was like, "Oh, are you talking about the Godfather with this?" And and she just kind of went like, "Oh, maybe, like, yeah, yeah, or something." You know, she at that point she didn't really she wasn't capable of really like explaining what she meant. But I, I continued to think about it, and then it, I remembered that, oh yeah, Frankie Valli played a character on some of The Sopranos' later seasons. He played one of the New York gangsters, and I talked to her about that. And I remember actually talking to her about that earlier this year when I rewatched the show. I remember it being like, you know, it's so cool that Frankie Valli played a gangster, and he did, he did it so well. Because you wouldn't think of him as a tough guy, you know. He's obviously a New Jersey guy. He came up. He came from those neighborhoods. Uh, he looks the part, but you wouldn't necessarily expect Frankie Valley to to be a a really damn good wise guy on a TV show. And he was. He did. A, he had a relatively small role, but it was great. And I remember talking to my mom about that. And. It wasn't until I got home and and in the days after she passed that I thought more about her saying that to me because there really was this little glimmer in her eye and it almost felt like she was winking at me. You know, it almost felt like her or something, you know, was winking at me. It was almost like a little message just straight to, to my heart, you know, for her to reference that. And I mean, to somebody else, I don't know how they would feel. I don't know how this sounds objectively, but I know in that moment... It felt like my mom was just, you know, even just, it was just kind of like, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to verbalize it. And I feel like if I go on too much, I mean, I'll, I'll cry here. But uh, it it was just a little wink saying, like, I know you. I think, I, you know, I think that's that's what that was. It was... It was this little, there was this little glimmer in her eye that I hadn't seen in any of my interactions with her the last couple days of her life. And it was just kind of like, I know you. And then when I went home, I thought about it more. And like, 50s singer Sopranos, didn't her question was, on the Sopranos, didn't they have that 50s singer? And she was, I think she was just somewhere in her database was remembering that like we had talked about Frankie Valley being on the Sopranos and then it made total sense. And since then, you know, I haven't been very enthusiastic about music lately for the last few months, last few years really, but it's in the last few months I just really haven't wanted to listen to music at all and since then I dug out my Frankie Valley, you know, anthology set and I've been listening to that a lot and I listened to it on my car ride up to see family the other night for Christmas and I listened to it all the way back and it's just powerful and Frankie Valley too the the nice thing about those classic Frankie Valley songs is it's almost like listening to Christmas music without it being about Christmas you know it's like cuz I don't I I can appreciate Christmas music but I don't I'm not going to listen to it you know I'm not going to like put Christmas music on my own stereo or listen to it in the car but listening to Frankie Valley on the way to to go to Christmas at my sister's house it really felt like it was relevant not just to that experience I had with my mom but also just to you know the Christmas spirit there's something about that sound and uh, maybe maybe that's sort of what you know 50s 60s music has 
and I've just never really been able to put a finger on it, you know? Maybe it is this thing that kind of captures a Christmassy atmosphere without actually singing the, those, you know, uh, beaten, I don't know, without those, those beaten to death Christmas melodies. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying here. Uh, I don't know what this, I don't know what this tangent is about Christmas, but I'm going to play a couple more Frankie Valli songs. It's just kind of incredible that my mom and I had that moment and it felt like she was just saying, I know you. Right. Despite everything going on, despite the fact that she was really in her final hour or two of life, and it was the last thing she directly said to me before they put the breathing tube in and and she went unconscious, Um, looking out the window now and I see a squirrel with like a big mouthful of leaves, which is cool, but... um, uh, but anyway, it was just, it was just a little wink from her, from, it was, it was a powerful moment, and I'm, you know, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, should I, like, keep that a secret, should that just be my own little special moment, and I really don't feel that way at all about the whole situation with my mom, I really, I felt the need to talk about it when and however I want, and to not, like, hold on to these little secret, sacred moments, and I think that the the power of this whole event, the power of this whole situation, is that this little moment between my mom and I, where she referenced something that I was passionate about, but not only that, she did it, you know, in the in her final moments, really, in, in her in the in her final conscious moments, and despite all of the the crazy stuff that was going on, despite the fact that she was just kind of dropping non sequiturs and and there was no context to a lot of what she was saying she was able to like zero in on this highly specific thing that was relevant to me and just kind of and and I swear there was this little glimmer in her eye when she said it and you hear about moments like that you hear about them but to have had that to have been there and to have had that uh it it's told me that this December is the time for Frankie Valley, so I'm going to play a couple more Frankie Valley songs here, and they're going to be older ones. They're going to be well known. Uh, falsetto Frankie, but uh, first we're going to play "Girl Come Running," and then "Big Man in Town."
some of that special falsetto from Frankie. Falsetto Frankie. And, you know, I don't know too many artists who did it that well, because, I mean, what's good about him is the contrast. You know, he could do that falsetto, and I don't know why that high-pitched voice resonates with me so much, because, you know, it borders on cartoony, it borders on silly. I mean, it is silly, but still, it, it gets me, it hits me, and... With Frankie Valley in particular, it's the contrast. You know, he'll be singing in his normal voice, which is highly unique. You know, there's nobody who really sings like him, even when he's doing the the normal register, his natural voice. Uh, but then they'll just cut into a chorus where he just lets that, you know, high register falsetto just cut through. And I think that contrast is what I like the most, just going from one to the other. Uh, it's so controlled, but it feels so w- wild. Really, it's it's it's. I mean, how else do you describe a voice like that except wild? And I'm trying to think of others who did that during the same period. And I, I always think of Lou Christie, who I've played on here earlier. Lou Christie was very much going for a Frankie Valli thing. Frankie Valli obviously influenced him, uh, but nobody did it like Frankie Valli. Um. But uh, I'm going to play a country song here. I was going through songs to play, and I wasn't planning on playing any country. I just didn't feel like it was relevant. Uh, But I did find a song that uh, is a little cliche. It's going to be a a little cliche. It's, you know, can't be afraid of cliches. And in these sorts of situations with the events that I've been going through in my life, it's very hard to avoid cliches. It's very hard to avoid the cheese, you know? It's very hard to avoid cheesy things, and they become very relevant. But like I've said about cliches, you know, there's a reason why they're around, and cliches have very deep roots. And sometimes it takes epiphanies. Sometimes it takes your life shifting in certain ways to understand why cliches are relevant and remain relevant. And uh, this song, though, I wouldn't even call it a cliche. I would just say it's it's just highly specific to the current situation. And I was almost hesitant to play it for that reason. But if I were to play it 10 years from now, it would still bring to mind the situation I'm going through right now. It would still bring to mind the exact, it, it, there, it's an unavoidable, there's an unavoidable context to it. And that's because it's called a memory of mother. And so I think it's nice to have a little country flair in this episode, just a, a, one little dose of country and a song that's just called a memory of mother. Why not? You know, that's what we're doing here. Uh, I shouldn't even try to pretend that this episode is anything other than that, a memory of my mother. A memory is one gift of God that death can last country our family did mom and daddy and us eight kids 
We didn't have much as far as riches go Oh, the treasure we had we just didn't know Paul had just returned from work that day It was December the 24th, Christmas Eve day He'd worked real hard to make our Christmas bright But little did he know of our sorrow that night There wasn't much oil in the old lamp that night So the logs in the fireplace we used for our light And next morning being Christmas it didn't seem right For sadness to sit in our midst at night That night at nine, Mama took you. I know nine must have been God's holy will. For she seemed to know that this Christmas here would be the last one with her love on so deep. It was 11.25 when I woke in the light to find that Santa had been there that night. But with tears in my eyes, I rose from my bed Cause Mama was talking and here's what she said Now take care of my baby and raise him up right Cause I won't be able, I'm leaving tonight Then Daddy embraced her like never before as Though to give comfort through death's open door Then Mama returned that one last caress And then she said, honey, I'm going to rest And my heart filled with fear, she bowed her head Cause Paul started crying and I knew she was dead A memory that I can't forget Is a mother Cripple here that you clothe and feed 
is neither starved nor cold He does not ask for your company Not at the center, the center of the world You did not raise me there Your laws do not compel me To kneel grotesque and bare I myself am the pedestal For this ugly hump at which you stare You must learn what makes me kind The crumbs of love that you offer me They're the crumbs I've left behind Your pain is no credential here It's just the shadow, shadow of my wound Obviously, uh, a memory of mother was followed up there with, by Leonard Cohen, who yeah really was my mom's favorite artist of the last few years, and she was really into the newer Leonard Cohen, the later Leonard Cohen, where it's kind of just him talking in a gravelly voice, reading poetry basically over this more modern production, which is interesting. You know, it's interesting that she got into that so heavily, and it's just it's interesting that when he returned, he had that sound and. 
I never really considered myself a Leonard Cohen fan. He was always one of those singer-songwriter artists that just wasn't really in my circuit. But I always respected him, and when someone was a Leonard Cohen fan, I respected that a lot. Uh, but, you know, a number of months ago, early earlier in 2019, I, a friend of mine, and we had been sort of dating very, very lightly, and I just unfortunately just couldn't be available in any way, not to go too deep into that, but it was just, it was just a, it sucked, because it was somebody I really liked, but I just knew I couldn't be there in any way and I remember she sent me that song and it stood out to me it was just listening to it at that time was just very powerful for me and uh, I later was talking to my mom about Leonard Cohen and I brought up that song and played it for her so there is a memory of mother you know here's a, a cheesy moment but there was a memory of my mom and I listening to that song and and it was interesting because she wasn't as into the earlier Leonard Cohen. Like she was a fan of all of his stuff, but it was interesting to, to just that there was that distinction where she generally listened to the stuff. Like, you know, she loved the the quote, uh, "There's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in." I might be saying that slightly wrong, but uh, there's a crack in that too. When you say something slightly wrong, there's a crack in that too. That's my own version of it. When you, when you quote somebody wrong, you're putting a crack in it, and that's how the light gets into a quote. There's a scientific process uh, for light getting into quote quotations, and you have to say them wrong. Sometimes saying something wrong is actually how to get something more powerful out of it, though. Uh, there's some truth to that in my experience. But yeah, Leonard Cohen, Avalanche, very powerful song. Uh, I've been listening to him... Uh, not a lot, but since my mom passed, I've definitely had a few Leonard Cohen nights in her honor. And, uh, you know, speaking of memories, you know, I got into doo-wop when I was much younger. And I didn't really dig in too deep back then because I just didn't have the resources. But I, would, I had, you know, some of those best of doo-wop CDs, which who decides? Who decided what was the best? I mean, those were good, though. I mean, you get a good foundation for the classics on those CDs. And, uh, you know, almost all of those have the Pretenders, or sorry, not, not the Pretenders, the Platters, Great Pretender. I think that's by the Platters. Uh, the Pretenders. <laughs> the Pretenders with The Great Pretender. No, I believe it's The Platters who did that famous version of The Great Pretender, which is a wonderful classic doo-wop song. But I remember listening to that and my mom saying, you know, my sister used to go around singing that in our house growing up uh, when that song was new. And her sisters were both a, a few years older and uh, had different fathers than she did, and she had a ton of little brothers. So it was, it was like eight kids, I think. Um, might be getting that wrong. Seven or eight kids, I think eight. And uh, she though she remembers her older sister singing that, The Great Pretender. And this sister in particular was one who was really singled out for abuse by the mom, and she ended up being an addict and just having all kinds of problems. You know, it's no mystery why. And my mom at one point even had to rescue her sister's kids from her and take them to go live with their dad and stepmom in another state. Uh, and that's the kind of person my mom was, is, you know, even though she loved her sister, she saw the trouble in her sister's household and that she couldn't be a mom. She wasn't capable and had to 
you know, take the kids. And I vaguely remember like hints of that story. But when my mom passed away a few weeks ago, uh, my cousin, whose mom was that sister, uh, brought that up. You know, he said, "My, you know, I I heard growing up that my that your mom, you know, basically helped save us and take us to go live with my dad." But uh, that always stood out to me that her sister, this one who was abused and troubled and lived a very tragic life until the very end, um, you know, that this, the, the Great Pretender was a song she would go around the house singing. And she probably felt that way. She probably felt like the Great Pretender. Um, but uh, this is not going to be the Platters version. This is going to be a, actually a joke version of the song. And there's something about joke versions of doo-wop songs. And by joke, I mean like the old... Because there would be these old uh, TV shows. I mean, Benny Hill. I've played some Benny Hill on here before where he, he does a, a Roy Orbison parody, for example. And, and there's actually a Benny Hill doo-wop parody it's not based on any other song but he's doing a parody of doo-wop music and it's actually really dark and weird and that's kind of what i'm getting at here where like sometimes the when people would do these parodies of doo-wop songs it was supposed to be really funny but it would actually make the song just really weird and that much darker and that's kind of why i'm playing this roy clark version here roy clark doing his own live TV cover of The Great Pretender, and he's trying to turn it into a total joke, but to me, he just makes it really fucked up and weird, which I like. And so there is this, you know, family story I heard about The Great Pretender, uh, and just on its own, though, just on, on its own, my taste, hearing somebody do this weird version of it, of all the songs to do do a weird version like this. And Roy Clark, you know, very talented. He's doing all the sounds himself live, which itself is a feat. So Roy Clark, the great pretender, he's pretending that this is just pure comedy, but really he's doing something much darker and deeper, in my opinion. This is a NF chord in case anybody would like to jump in, uh, like in uh, Phoenix. This is like they did make a step. I'm the great pretender. Pretending on doing well. I need such I pretend too much. I 
Speaking of goofiness, about 15 years ago, my friend Miles showed me that song poem documentary that I believe I've referenced on here before because I have played some song poems. And the star of the whole song poem world, and if you're not familiar, song poems were you could basically write your own lyrics and send money in to a company and they would they would have a studio mu- musician put your lyrics to music and then press it onto a record just for you. I imagine it was pretty expensive and it was a pretty cool idea. And some of the studio musicians were better than others and the one that stood out was a guy named Rod Keith who uh, lived a very tragic life uh, despite doing these goofy song poems. Uh, he was, uh, I mean, it's not surprising at all. It's like if you're a talented musician and you know, you're know you stuck just making these weird little novelty records over and over again, uh, if you already have demons, that's just going to bring them to the forefront. But Rod Keith, you know, later on as like the nerds and the collectors and people focused on these song poems, they found that Rod Keith was a a cut above the rest. And it's true. You know, I've delved into that stuff myself and Rod Keith did do some pretty impressive stuff. Some of it's really goofy. Some of it's actually profound. And there's other song poem artists too, who did some really great stuff. But uh, this song in particular, it's, one that Miles introduced me to, and it's called Cloud Nine. And it's sort of a 50s-style, just drifty, almost ethereal... uh, It sounds like Cloud Nine. It sounds heavenly. Uh, It's a tune that I was listening to not that long ago. I was at my mom's house, and uh, I was listening to it one day, and uh, she was in the other room, and she, she was just like, that's so good. I can't remember her exact words, but it was just something... She felt the need to come in and comment on it. And it is one of those songs where if you just heard it somewhere, if you heard it like, you know, coming from a car or not that you ever would, but if you heard it coming from a car, or you heard it like in the background of something, you'd, you'd want to know what it is. Uh, so I just, you know, it is a memory of my mom hearing this and her just being, feeling the need to comment, you know, feeling the need to comment. And that says something. So I'm going to play that song here. Rod Keith Cloud Nine. And I should add, too, that Rod Keith, you know, he died a very tragic death. Uh, he got into drugs, and he actually jumped off a freeway overpass and killed himself. So, you know, he, he's obviously a tragic character, uh, relatively little known, you know, out, outside of this song poem documentary, outside of the niche following that that music has. He's not very well known, but he, through it all, despite being this novelty record studio musician uh he was a true artist i 
Brothers Unchained Melody because it, it's actually live uh, with Bobby Hatfield actually singing because a lot of the live versions that you can find of that are just lip syncing and that one though it, it doesn't follow the recorded song exactly it's uh, done live and the reason I played it you know obviously it's a one of the most famous songs ever uh, but, you know, there is a mom association, like everything else on this episode. There is a mom association with it for me because in the same way that she heard me listening to that Rod Keith Cloud Nine from the other room one day and felt, you know, the need to ask about it or say something about it, just like with her, it was just something like, oh, that's beautiful music. You know, she she just she commented on beauty. She noticed beautiful things. I would say that was one trait that my mom just constantly had. She noticed beautiful things, small and large, but often small. Uh, but there was the reverse of that experience, which is why I uh, played uh, Unchained Melody right after Cloud Nine. It's because in the same way that she heard that Rod Keith song one day and commented on it to me, uh, she heard me listening to it one day many years ago. I was, you know, doing my own thing, and I could just hear this beautiful sort of 60s. I couldn't tell if she was listening to doo-wop. I couldn't tell what she was listening to, but I just kept hearing this song play over and over again. And, you know, Unchained Melody was a song I had heard before, I'm sure, but I didn't associate it with the Righteous Brothers you know, I always think of the Righteous Brothers as being more of a soul group, which I I would say they are. Uh, but I could just hear something. You know, I was a, a couple. I was like upstairs, and I could just I heard her listening to something. I think she was cleaning. I don't know what it was. And later, I went down and I had to ask, and she was listening to the Righteous Brothers' Unchained Melody. And from that moment on, it became an important song to me. And it, it's such a famous song too. It, it you know you. It, what's funny in all this is I've been watching football and there's some TV commercial that's, that comes on all the time. That It's like some, 
it's like a Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial, actually. Uh, and it's like Colonel Sanders doing something silly. Colonel Sanders doing something silly. And it's uh, it got Unchained Melody playing in the background. And every time it comes on, I get a little chill. And then I look at the TV, and it's like fucking Kentucky Fried Chicken. Fucking Kentucky Fried Chicken. But I kind of appreciate that. In the same way that, you know, like... I don't know. I just I just kind of appreciate that dynamic. I appreciate that like something that like has this emotional weight and that I associate with my mom and this and that. Like while all this is going on, I look at the TV and it's fucking KFC, fucking KFC. Uh, I just it's funny to me, but it goes back to cliches because it's like if if music were a, if a song was a cliche, Unchained Melody would be one of those. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't lose its power. Its roots are very deep. And I, of course, have this personal association with it, too. And speaking of personal association, or maybe just personal, I'm going to play a song here that I don't think you can hear anywhere else. I think this might be an exclusive. Uh, I, it's from a, a close friend of mine who, if you've been a close follower of the show... Shouldn't be a total stranger. My friend Kyle Haynes, he performed when we were much younger under the name The Bloom in Idaho. And, you know, as much as I've ranted about musicians and people, the narcissism and the self-centeredness and the Melkor, Morgoth, you know, Lord of the Rings, you know, sort of uh, vanity of, uh, you know, musicians and, and, and everyone's, like, musician fantasies. You know, my friend Kyle is none of that. Truly one of the most sincere musicians and therefore people that I, I've come into contact with uh, when it comes to music. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily expect, you know, everyone to, you know, have the same connection to it because there is a personal connection for me. But really, he always manages to catch me, you know, and I'm... I'm I'm someone who, if a friend does something and I don't like it, you know, I'll nod my head or something, but I, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna go out of my way to praise it. I, I try to, I, I like my friendships to be honest, you know, but Kyle, he's, he's always managed, managed to catch me in just the right way. And he had sent me this song he did, I think he did it a while back. I think he did it a number of years ago. And it's a song about his mom, and it's called Mama. I believe it's called Mama, um, and obviously it fits with the theme of this episode, and I'm, I'm really happy I'm able to tie him in with this, since, you know, he's been this, not a constant on this show, but, he, you know, I have made an effort to work his music into this show a number of times in a number of different episodes over the years, so it's really just, it makes me feel really good to be able to play this song and to have it be so relevant. And when he sent it to me, my mom was alive, of course, and it still resonated with me and brought a tear to my eye. And, uh, you know, that should say something in and of itself. And that's a thing, too, though. It's, it's, I think I said it in this last night school episode, but the thing about, you know, having a close relationship to somebody and having a loved one, and in particular a parent, you know, you do fear their inevitable death. And in doing that, in fearing that, you sort of grieve them, you grieve losing them for your entire life, and then when they're actually gone, there's still this grief, but it's weird to, there's also this relief that comes with the fact that you're no longer preparing to grieve. 
And the fact that I'm no longer preparing to grieve my mom, I'm simply in the process of the real grief, the real thing. It's an entirely different it's just it's it's just different, you know? It's it's crazy. And and to think about that, the the number of things that are like that too. It's not just the thing you fear the most, maybe losing your mom. I imagine like if you are a parent yourself, you know, losing your child is, is a similar thing where no matter how no matter how much freedom you give your kid, no matter how much independence, you know, I've heard that parents never stop worrying, never stop fearing. Uh, but it's also not a given. I mean, it's rare that a parent loses their child before the parent themselves dies. Whereas with with being as the kid and and having parents, it's almost inevitable that you will lose them first. Hopefully, I mean that's that's the better deal. You know, it's much easier for a child to lose their parent than a, a parent to lose their child. And I think that's the better deal, if if you even want to call it that, if you even want to see it in those terms. But, um, you know, there is this aspect of it that, that's really hit home recently where I'm like, you know, in many ways, you know, and it, it wasn't to a pathological degree, but in many ways I spent almost 34 years grieving the loss of my mom before it actually happened. So now that it's here, it's just, it's like a whole new thing. It's this whole new ball game, really. Uh, and and who knows how it's going to play out. Um, but this song by my friend Kyle, Mama. I think that this is the perfect opportunity to play this song that resonated with me when I first heard it.
Yeah, you can always buy some ugly girl a beautiful diamond ring with a little responsibility. Good message. But uh, the song touched me. It touched me. And uh, we're going to go back here, go circle back to the beginning, and we're going to play a little more Frankie Valley. I was driving home from my sister's house a couple days ago on the freeway and listening to disc two of the Frankie Valley anthology. And a song that I guess I had never really thought about caught me, and it's called The Proud One. I had to play it twice. I didn't play anything twice, I don't think, during that car ride, but I felt the need to play this one twice. It's from 1966. It's Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, The Proud One. And if I didn't say it before, we're, we're playing Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons here. Can't leave out the Four Seasons. Uh, can't leave, can't leave out the four seasons, especially right here in winter. You know, how dare we not acknowledge those four seasons, but Frankie Valley and the four seasons, the proud one and the chorus in particular is what gets me. And I, I like the title of the song, the proud one. And that's going to be followed up with a song that I may have played on here before. It's a Frankie Valley tune that I may have played, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. And I feel like it's a cover. I've, maybe both of these are covers. I don't know. Uh, but Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. It's real goofy. But it, it actually made me cry the other night. And uh, it's got some, some weird little sounds in it, some even weirder vocal sounds in addition to the falsetto. The intro to this song has these weird little, like, watery, goofy sounds, but it's powerful to me. I don't know, there's something about Frankie Valli. He has the ability to take what should otherwise be kind of weird or goofy sounds and make them that much more powerful. So, uh, two Frankie Valli songs, The Proud One and Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Frankie Valli, I feel like, has become somehow sanctified. You know, I was already a huge fan. He was already, you know, a foundation of my taste in this era of music. But I feel like this whole process, the whole hospital exchange between my mom and I, he's taken on this whole new dimension for me. Really strange stuff when, when that can happen. i 
the proud one may have been made famous by the osmonds i don't know if they did it before frankie but i know the osmonds have their own version of the proud one and that don't think twice it's all right is actually a cover of a bob dylan song of all things and thank god for frankie valley 
Thank God for Frankie Valli. Because of him, I didn't actually have to play the Osmonds, and I didn't actually have to play Bob Dylan. I got to to play them with a proxy, and that proxy was Frankie. Frankie the proxy. Frankie Falsetto the proxy. The middleman. Frankie Valli's a middleman, and I mean, I feel like that's what he was, uh, you know, on my mom's deathbed. In some weird way, this this vague reference that I realized later was to Frankie Valli... Was that he was some sort of uh, communication? Frankie Valley was a middleman, even in that moment. My mom communicating something to me through this weird little, uh, this weird little question, this weird little comment, you know, and and the power of that, and to have had that moment, just you know, there's no way I could not have played a bunch of Frankie Valley on this show. But I'm going to wind down the episode now with a couple songs completely unrelated to my mom. Uh, I mean, they're they're songs that are obviously going to be in that spirit. And they're part of the motherly spirit, the motherly love. Uh, But they're not going to be related to memories of her or anything like that. Um, And the the first song I'm going to play here to close it out is by an artist called Motherly Love, strangely enough. And this is one that I've had in the hopper for a while. I've been waiting for the right time to play it, and obviously that's now. And the artist is actually called Motherly Love. I don't know if it's a group. I've never actually done any research into it because I think I was just so... uh, It's one that I haven't really been able to wrap my mind around because the song itself is called Little One. and It's a very sentimental, kind of a sad song. It's beautiful. It's a loving, sad song. But I haven't completely been able to wrap my mind around it because the artist's name is Motherly Love. Just an interesting decision, because we all know motherly love is such a powerful and distinct entity. And you know, and from talking to some people through this process, it's like I, I, I know some people and I've talked to some people who aren't close to their mom or don't feel loved by their mom. Or if they do feel loved by their mom, the relationship is just too complicated and there, there are some impurities in the mix that make it difficult. And... You know, in going through this process now myself, it's like I I hope that those people can take something from this, but, you know, I don't know that they can necessarily. I mean, we all have different relationships with not just the people in our lives, but existence itself, and people are going to not all have that same experience with their mom. You know, they're not, not everybody's going to have a, a fairly pure relationship with their mom, and so in that way, I'm ultimately grateful it's one of the things I'm actually most grateful for, you know, and someday I'll be able to look back at my entire life. I mean, who's to say I can't look back now? Who's to say I can't look back now? Uh, but even just looking back now, it's like, what's one thing that I'm just truly just immeasurably grateful for beyond everything else? And that's to have felt that love, to have felt that motherly love. And so this song by Motherly Love, strange artist name, uh, it's called Little One, and, you know, I don't, I think it's a, a romance song. I don't think it's about a mom and child relationship, but, you know, with, with any kind of romance song, with any kind of love song, you know, they're open for interpretation, and they do bring out just some sort of universal spirit of love in you when you get the, sp- the specifics out of it. Let's get the specifics out of here. Uh, you do end up with just this feeling And you can apply that feeling to anything. So this song by Motherly Love, Little One, 
it's a feeling that I think you can apply to anything, anything important to you. And for me, you know, one of the most important things that I will always carry with me is that feeling of motherly love, even though it isn't going to be just something I can get through the telephone or get through a visit to her house or through a conversation with her, even though it's lost its material form, you know, the knowledge I have and the experience I've had and the feeling I have of that motherly love is magic. You know, if there's anything that truly qualifies as magic, I believe that is it. Is a story I like to tell about a girl. She's my
thought about just closing it out with that one. It would have done the job, but because I do have a little control here. Sometimes you can control the ending, sometimes you can't, not to get too cheesy about it. Uh, but because uh, I can control the ending here, I'm going to leave leave you all with one last one. And I'm not going to give it any kind of explanation or anything. It's from 1957. And it's by Adele, but not Del Shannon. It's Del Reeves. And it's called Because You Loved Me. Should speak for itself. Doesn't matter what the context is. You know, it doesn't matter anything at all. Because You Loved Me by Del Reeves. Reveals her hills and plains 
I see a land where children can run free. So take my hand and walk this land with me and walk this lovely land with me. Hey! 